Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week, we pick a new history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week, I'm pleased to say we have Marnie Anderson of Smith College on the show, and we'll be talking about her terrific book, A Place in Public, Women's Rights in Meiji Japan. I hope you enjoy the interview. Hi, Marnie. Hi, Marshall. How are you today? I'm fine. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Today we're talking to Marnie Anderson of Smith College in Northampton, Massachusetts, about her book, A Place in Public, Women's Rights in Meiji Japan. I've read this book. It's really very interesting. I had studied the women's movement a little bit, especially in 19th century America. I had no idea that some emanation of it got to Japan during the Meiji should we say revolution or I don't, I don't know what you, (laughs) you can say restoration, Restoration. you can say revolution. I I personally prefer revolution, but I'll I'll follow you. The, the, the Meiji revolution. (laughs) And so I was very interested to read uh, Marnie's book because uh, echoes of it did appear there. I was happy to see John Stuart Mill's name, I think in the book, a couple of places. And he's one of my favorite people. And it was just so interesting to see the impact of some of these Western ideas on Japan. And it sort of reminded me of something, that I know about Japanese baseball. You know, Japanese adopt baseball from the United States, and but they made it their own. It's mm-hmm. a Japanese baseball is different than American baseball. They have rules of various sorts that we don't have. I don't know mm-hmm. a lot about them, but this is also true of this signal that was sent, I guess, from the West, you might say generally, to Japan, and then it was indigenated or indigenized, whatever one says. It was sort of made to conform with late 19th century Japanese values and everything that was going on there. And, you know, Marnie does a great job of showing how pretty much everything was in flux at the time. So speaking about some set of Japanese values, probably not the most appropriate thing to do. But anyway, I thought it was a great book, and I hope you go out and buy it. Um, Marnie, why don't you help us begin the interview by saying a few words about yourself? Sure. Uh, I am originally from the state of Oregon on the West Coast, and I did my graduate work at the University of Michigan, um, and I was mentored by Leslie Pincus and Hitomi Tonomura. And I know a lot of people at Michigan. It's a great program there. It really is. And the the number of scholars focusing on women and gender is just astounding, and it was a wonderful place to be a graduate student. So that's a tip for you uh, folks who are thinking about applying to graduate school. (laughs) Right there. And um, uh, the University of Michigan sent the check to... uh, So, Marnie, why don't you tell us how you came to uh, to land on this particular topic? Sure. Well, I I went to grad school knowing I wanted to study modern Japanese history um, and that I wanted to study women, but I wanted to find a way to do that that wouldn't be ignored or overlooked or seen as somehow not very important. Um, and so I was really interested in looking at uh, the activities of, of women who'd been involved in this movement for uh, freedom and democracy in the late 19th century. Japanese scholars had done wonderful books about local men um, who were doing things like reading uh, John Stuart Mill in translation and then writing constitutions. Uh, so I wanted to, to sort of find 
uh, out what women were doing and to cover that side of the story. There were a few references to women who'd been involved in this movement in, in certain books, but no one had really gone and looked um, just at women at all levels of society. So I got to Japan to do my research and then found out that my project was basically impossible, uh, that it would take probably 10 years just to do the archival research. So I switched my focus to elite discourses about women in the 19th century. So the first part of the book is, is mostly um, about men speaking about the women question, and then women join the conversation in the second half. But it isn't the book that I set out to write at mm -hmm. the beginning. Is it ever the book you set out to write? I've not ever <laughs> talked to anybody. I don't know. You tell me. No, no. I have just uh, I have files of books that I almost wrote and then didn't write. I, yeah. You know, I, it's uh, yeah, you begin with a plan, and then the plan goes out the window. It's like going right. to war. It's the same thing. Right. Uh, so maybe you could set the scene for us a little bit. I have to admit my ignorance about uh, 19th century Japan and about the Meiji Revolution. I know a little bit about the Tokugawa period, and I guess what's called the Edo period. I do. Edo, Edo, Edo and Tokugawa are the same Edo. thing. Okay, yeah. good. Uh, so could you talk a little bit about Japan before, and I use this word hesitantly, it's opening. Opening, I never really liked that word, but anyway. <laughs> Or something. The yeah, there are some problems yeah. with it. Um, so Japan, for about 268 years, is under the rule of the Tokugawa family. This is a military regime um, that is relatively decentralized. But in the mid-19th century, um, the Japanese hear about what the West is doing in other parts of Asia, notably China. Um, some of the listeners may have heard of the Opium War um, in the 1840s, uh, where the British and China go to war. And the Japanese know about what's happening and are very eager to preserve their autonomy. So they end up having a restoration or revolution in 1868. Um, and the goal is to, to build a strong nation state that will hold the West at bay, um, and they succeed in doing this eventually. They're saddled with unequal treaties for a while, but they eventually overturn those and go on to become a major power in their own right. Now, can you tell me a little bit about uh, the position of women in the Tokugawa period, or is that just too much? Ah, uh, it's a you know, great question. Well, the reason, the reason I ask it is that, you know, of course, every uh, Westerner has this image of Japanese women, uh, in, yes. and, and, and you, you know what it involves. And, and uh, well, it shows them in subservient positions, generally speaking. Right. Uh, so if you, if you could talk a little bit about uh, sort of what, Jap what roles Japanese women played in the Tokugawa period and, and, uh, and, and uh, sort of how they were integrated into the social community. Right. That's a great question and a complicated one. The sort of conventional wisdom until recently was that the Tokugawa period was a low point for women. Um, this was something that Japanese historians um, believed very strongly, and they saw it as um, a low point for women because of the military rule, the samurai rule, and somehow um, they, they viewed that as, as being especially um, hard for women to, to, to live through. Um, more recently, I think the question has become much more complicated because the Tokugawa period um, was a period where there was a status society. Um, so status was something you were born with, you were a samurai, you were a merchant, and you stayed that way your whole life, um, in theory, not necessarily in practice. And so what I'm arguing in my book, and I'm building on the work of other scholars, is that women's lives varied um, significantly based on their status. 
uh, merchant women um, in the cities often did, you know, had had relatively high status. Um, Elite women of the samurai, um, I don't want to say class, but status, probably a little bit um, more restricted uh, mobility. Um, But I think we're just starting to, to discover the rich variety of of experiences of women in the Tokugawa period. I personally don't think it makes a lot of sense to talk about women's status during the Tokugawa period because it varied so much um, Mm -hmm. depending on time and place and status. Mm -hmm. Well, one question I had was, you know, coming from the Russian context, as I do, Uh uh, you know, the the elite Russians, uh, until um, Peter the Great, uh, practice a kind of sequestration of women. Women and and men didn't really mix very much. Uh They they lived apart. Did the... the, um, did the, the, the people of the Tokugawa period, the elites, do that kind of thing? or? Well, if you read the official discourses, many of which are Confucian-inspired, and take them as describing social reality, you would conclude that, yes, indeed, um, that people were separate. But in practice, I think that was not the case. That there was a lot of mixing, that even if people weren't sort of mixing as husbands and wives at social functions, which definitely did not happen, and in fact probably still does not happen that much, um, that there were ways in which women and men were interacting. I mean, most people are living in households, which are, mm-hmm. um, you know, also sort of productive units where people are farming together. So the intermixing is happening all the time, and it's happening at the schools that are developing, um, especially as the period wears on. Um, so I, I think that in practice there's a great deal more mixing than the, the sort of prescriptive literature would have you believe. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Is there any literature in the Tokugawa period that is just about women, whether it was written by men or women, that, that, that deals with women's roles? I mean, you mentioned this Confucian literature. I know nothing about that, so if yeah. you could say things about that, uh, I'd be interested. Well, there's this notorious text that I take up, I think, in the introduction yeah. called the Onna Daigaku, The Greater Learning for Women. And this is um, for, was for, for decades seen as, as describing women's low status in the Tokugawa period. Recently, people have um, started to reread it as evidence of all sorts of different kinds of things. Um, for example, that it was a primer to teach women to read, um, that in practice no one ever actually um, followed the, the teachings of the Onadaigaku by and large. For example, let me back up a minute and say the Onadaigaku says things like, a woman should be divorced for being jealous, um, that sort of thing, and, and in practice that that never really happened. But that probably is the text that people think about when they think about texts um, about women in the Tokugawa period. Mm-hmm. Now, that was most likely written by a man, mm-hmm. um, and there were other texts like it. Uh, women also wrote texts, but they tended to be uh, manuscripts that were circulated privately. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, it's sort of parallel to the Russian case than the, the early modern Russian case. There are some texts that are, well, they're written by men. They may have been translated from the Greek. We don't really know. Uh, uh-huh. that, that describe household affairs, and they say uh-huh. things like beat your wife regularly and oh. you know, stuff like that. Uh-huh. Uh, and it also speaks directly to women about what they should and shouldn't do. And there's a big debate in Russian history about how much of this is actually Russian and how much is Greek and how much it reflects any sort of reality uh, at all. <laughs> um, and, I, and I don't really think there's a good answer to, to that, that question. But, you know, it's extraordinarily hard to find out things about, um, about almost about everybody in the Russian context because they didn't write things down. But I imagine the same is true in the Tokugawa context. Um, so let, let's, let's move forward to the, the Meiji um, Revolution, as we'll call uh-huh. it. Uh, can you talk a little bit about what that was? 
Sure. So it, it was much less dramatic um, than than revolution, as a word perhaps makes it sound. But it's um, trying to sort of simplify things. It's it's a moment when um, a group of samurai managed to convince uh, the shogun, the military ruler, to hand power to the emperor, um, and this inaugurates a, a new period where these this very same group of samurai are, are going to sort of help build Japan on, on the model of a Western nation state. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, there is a lot of turmoil in society leading up to the restoration or revolution, but the sort of actual handing over of power is relatively undramatic. Um, so when people write about it, they tend to focus on all of the sort of um, politics leading up to it and the young men going to Kyoto and um, engaging in all sorts of acts of violence and assassination. Um, what we have is, is really a group of, of younger samurai who have not managed to do very well um, in the old order, which has all sorts of problems. And they're very unhappy with the Tokugawa government's handling of the Western threat. Mm they see the Tokugawa as caving in to the West mm-hmm. um, too much and, and signing things like unequal treaties, which give Westerners special privileges in Japan. Um, for example, extraterritoriality, that is that Westerners are not subject to local law. Um, in any case, um, the sort of dissatisfaction both with the, the Tokugawa system itself and then its handling of the foreign crisis leads to the restoration or revolution. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I see. Now, uh, there, there's a parallel in Russian history, incidentally. And in the case of Russia, there was a very conscious westernization effort. Mm. Is, is this a westernization effort, or is it a kind of selective borrowing? Or I mean, it, I, I just find it sort of interesting that, a, that an entire people, or at least a ruling class or ruling order, could see that they needed to move in this direction. Yeah, I don't think they really thought they had much of a choice. I mean, they knew the humiliating um, result of the Opium War for China, which they'd looked up to for centuries. Um, so let me get back to your question. That's <laughs> no, okay, yeah. Um, I, I, I don't think they really thought that they had much of a choice, that this was really the only way yeah, to mean. move forward and that the government had really lost legitimacy. Mm-hmm. Oh, um, I, I don't think they saw themselves necessarily as becoming Western, but that they were following a policy of what they called civilization and enlightenment, that this wasn't a particularly Western goal that they had, that these sorts of ideas had originated in the West but were not inherently Western, and that if Japan wanted to um, modernize, it had to follow them as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so what we find is initially a real openness to these ideas um, that do come from the West, um, but there is a reaction against them around 1890, mm-hmm. which is sort of when my book ends in this sort of effort and, and also an anxiety, how can we, um, you know, be modern and also still be Japanese. Mm-hmm. So uh, you mentioned the civilization and enlightenment. What did that entail for them when they thought about how things were going to proceed and what they were going to adopt? Um, pretty much everything from the, um, they knew that they were going to have a, a legislature um, called the Diet on the a German model, um, modern education system, universal conscription. Up until this point, um, only samurai had, you know, had military training. Um, so sort of all of the components of a modern nation state. 
um, and, and they took Prussia as their model, mm-hmm. um, primarily, although they did borrow from other countries, for example, mm-hmm. France um, and Britain. So they were really trying to remake the entire political system. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I see. So let's move directly to the question of uh, women and what role women would play in uh, that bright future they were <laughs> designing. Uh, did, did they... Uh, confront this issue directly? And if so, in what terms? Did they have a language for it? Did they think about it as part of the program? I'm arguing in the book that, in fact, they did, and that this was just as important to them as some of the other tasks that they saw at hand, Um, for example, remaking the education system. And I think that they thought that the woman question was so important because they encountered this, this very strong idea in the West that in, this, in civilized countries, women were treated well. And there were textbooks at the time that talked about, you know, how barbaric, barbaric the treatment of Japanese women was. Um, and so they sort of, there, there's such a strong focus on wanting to become modern and accepted by the West so as to overturn the unequal treaties and, and attain equality that I think they see this, this question of the status of women as being very urgent and that they must do something um, so that Westerners recognize that they are just as civilized in Japan. Mm -hmm. And what did they plan to do vis-a-vis the status of women? They planned to uh, increase education. So up until this point, Japan actually enters modernity with a relatively high rate of female literacy, but there is no centralized system. Mm -hmm. Um, So they start doing things like opening up um, or or compulsory elementary education. Um, They talk a great deal in the 1870s about how to raise the status of of women. Um, Different people like Fukuzawa Yukichi talk about giving women property rights. Now, Fukuzawa is is this big name in Japanese history. He still um, sort of hovers over Japanese life. He's pictured on the um, 10,000 yen bill. Uh, But he is a prominent reformer and writes about how the status of women must be raised. so, so there's a lot of talk about it in the 1870s and early 1880s among men, um, elite influential men. Now, as far as what they do about it, it's <laughs> mm-hmm. they don't actually do that much, in, in my view, um, other than the education, um, sort of promoting women's education. They talk about doing things like eliminating um, concubinage um, and eliminating prostitution, uh, but there is no sort of sustained effort that follows those conversations. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, one of your chapters is called From Status to Gender. And, yes. And the, the part that I found very interesting about it is that they have to kind of construct a new category to do this, to yes. think about these things. Could you talk a little bit about that? Because it hadn't, been, it hadn't been really the focus of any sort of debate or discourse prior to that. Right. So what I'm really talking about in this chapter is that it's this question of, of who's going to represent the household. Um, And and so in conversations, especially at the local level, so not necessarily at the level of the central government, um, if we're talking about, you know, starting elections at the local level, then the question becomes, well, in households headed by women, do they get to vote? And it turns out that 
in many cases in the late Edo period or Tokugawa period, um, women who had represented the household had voted. Um, and so local leaders often want to continue this practice. Mm-hmm. They see it as is important. Um, what I'm trying to argue here is that this is not really an example of early feminism as it's been portrayed, but rather the continuance of, of older ideas that somehow status trumps gender. Um, but in the modern period, as, as election laws get drafted, what we see is that women are categorically excluded from voting simply because they are women, mm-hmm. whereas before there had been these exceptions. And this is a story that holds true in the West as well. Mm-hmm. You know, we see it in U.S. history, New Jersey, women property holders had limited rights that get lost. So somehow um, the advent of, of democratic revolutions or modernization wipes out these exceptions um, and mm-hmm. I wanted to make the case for Japan as well. Mm-hmm. And they discussed actually giving women various kinds of rights. Now, they actually, yes. I, should, I should say they introduce a rights talk, which it, at least in the Russian context was also introduced at a certain point, which was very unusual for the Russians. They didn't have a language for it. Uh-huh. It was about obligations. You had various kinds of obligations, and you served people. That's the way they spoke of political commitment. You were somebody's servant. Uh-huh. Um, rights is a very different way to speak about it. How did they? Uh, right. How did they? Uh, how do they assimilate this rights talk, and how did it apply to women? Well, I think that you, you see the Japanese in the 1870s translating parts of things like John Stuart Mill mm-hmm. and other texts, never the whole text, but parts of the text, um, and then sort of experimenting <laughs> with you know how much they're willing to, to take. Um, and I think that some people, especially at the local level, are open to extending rights to a greater group of people. I don't think anyone is imagining, you know, universal suffrage for women and men at this moment. Mm-hmm. But I do think that elite women um, and some elite men are imagining that elite women will continue to have some sort of rights. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm arguing that this is a legacy of older ideas um, where status in the household, so those representing households, um, should be the ones to vote, that that somehow trumps gender. And yet the state, you know, looks at Western models for laws and then starts including language that says things like women, minors, and criminals cannot vote. So all of a sudden (laughs) you have these elite women who are pretty mad. Um, because they have, in fact, lost something. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So uh, d- did they respond, these elite women? I mean, you talk a little bit about this in the book, I remember. Uh, did they have a forum? In, first of all, was there a forum in which they could respond, and then how did they respond? So we don't have many records of these women responding, except for the occasional petition and there is this petition that I cite in 1878 that's very, very famous by this widowed um, household head named Kusuno Sekita, where she says, why should she pay taxes given that she doesn't have the right to vote? Mm-hmm. Uh, there are cases where local officials are writing to the central government and saying, if we don't allow these female household heads to vote, we're going to lose valuable um, Taxes because they're going to refuse to pay their taxes. Right. But these right. are these are sort of. I don't have a lot of examples of mm-hmm. this, and I'm not necessarily even saying that that means that this was that this didn't happen very often. It's just that the records aren't there. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was definitely some resistance. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I mean, I have an even more basic question than that. You know, in the West, when these things were uh, going on, in other words, when, the, when women's rights were being discussed and giving them the franchise, allowing them to stand for office, allowing them to own property and things like this, there was a newspaper culture. And women wrote in those newspapers. Right. And that sort of is developing about a decade later. Mm-hmm. I mean, we start having newspapers in the 1870s, but I really think of the 1880s and 1890s as the period where newspapers sort of take off. And so from the latter, so say from 1885 on, we have a lot more letters in newspapers, but they're not necessarily coming from elite women. They're tending to come more from members of the emerging middle class. Um, the women who make a big appearance in the fourth chapter of my book. Um, mm-hmm. But there's no, I mean, I'm trying to think, the, the word that comes, the phrase that comes to mind, which, which is, of course, uh, very anachronistic, there are no female public intellectuals, there are no Katie Stantons, there are no, we don't find anybody emerging out of the context of that stature. No, not of that stature. I would say that if you had to come up with a, a counterpart, people would say, you know, Kishida Toshiko certainly had um, the, the, the eye of the national press on her. She's the woman who graces the cover of my book and mm-hmm. gave a number of public speeches. Um, mm-hmm. Well, you said you mentioned public speeches. You talk about the development of a public sphere. Right. Uh, which, uh, so uh, she, uh, public speech is given in the public sphere. How does that, uh, how does that develop and how, how do women get into it? Well, I think it's emerging as part of this new political culture that we see in the 1880s. Um, the, the Japanese historian uh, Inada Masahiro has talked about um, the, the movement that I started this interview saying I wanted to study, this freedom and people's rights movement. Mm-hmm. Um, he talks about it really as, as the beginning of a new political culture. So before, people were not really involved in matters of state unless there was some sort of problem. But in the modern period, um, they are sort of compelled to or feel like they want to participate in the yeah. system. So they get involved in different kinds of associations and start writing um, articles and constitutions and that sort of thing. And so women get involved um, in this as well, and I delve into you know a few groups um, in the course of the book um, that that participate in, in similar ways to these men's groups. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I see. So then uh, there is a forum for people uh, to speak and express their opinions, but it's not the sort of standard newspaper forum that we think about. Could you talk a little bit about some of these groups? I mean, were they evanescent, or did they, any of them have sort of any sort of uh, longevity? Well, the group that probably has the, the longevity is the, the Japanese branch of the Women's Christian Temperance Union, which yeah. opens, I believe, in 1886. Um, but there are groups that start before then, and um, my guess is that they last longer than we might think, but it's very hard to get um, the documentary record for these kind of groups. You know, probably what happened is that their relatives threw away the materials, and yeah. so what we're relying on here is newspaper reports right. about these groups. So they're not necessarily writing articles always, but, you know, if they gave a public speech or submitted a petition for something, then those acts are likely to have made it into the newspaper and... Uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah, that's a tough documentary base to write. Yeah. I mean, that's, a, yeah, that's challenging. So I yeah. applaud you. <laughs> there must have been weeks at a time when you're like, I can't do this. <laughs> nothing well, here. the Japanese historian Oki Motoko um, told me, she said, you know, there are probably a lot of things in people's attics. Yeah. Um, this is in Kochi Prefecture, but she said they'd probably be too embarrassed to ever, you know, let anyone know that their relatives were active in these movements, which surprised me, but... 
Um, you know, she's someone who spent years trying to get access to these documents, so I trust that her judgment was correct. Yeah, yeah. So let me ask you a, a question which I don't think is dealt with directly in your book, as I recall, mm-hmm. and that is about resistance to these ideas. Were there people that simply said, uh, you know, it's fine to modernize, uh, which means conscription and factories and modern weapons and maybe some uh, very indirect democracy, but a women's place is over here, and we shouldn't even be talking about this. There are very few people who espouse such opinions, especially by 1890. I think if, even if they really believed that in their heart, they didn't think that that would wash because they had Westerners coming over to Japan telling them that they were uncivilized. <laughs> And I think they just sort of made their peace with the fact that they were going to have to allow women someplace in public life, if only to be considered civilized by the West, which they cared about very, very much. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's interesting you mentioned that because the same is true in the Russian case. The Russians knew that Westerners were coming over and they were calling the place barbaric. Mm. And this embarrassed them greatly, I think even more yes. so in the Russian case, because the Russians were often, at least beginning in the late 18th and, of course, the 19th century, they were educated in the West. Uh-huh. So they would go there, they would come back speaking French and all this other stuff, right. and they would realize what Westerners actually thought about them. And it had a, it had a very significant impact on, on their own self-perception. I hadn't thought about that in the Japanese case, but I guess, yeah, I guess that is, I guess that is right. Was there a lot of flow back and forth between the West and Japan in the, in the late well, 19th in century? The late- I don't really know. I'm asking you. Yeah, well, in the early, for in the mid nineteenth century, even before the Tokugawa government falls, the Japanese undertake a mission to the West, and the records uh, of that mission have been translated, and they're really interesting because you get a sense of what these elite samurai men thought of Western women. Um, they didn't quite know what to make of them. Um, and then early on in the Meiji period, the Japanese government undertakes this unprecedented. Um, move and and sends about half of the government officials to study abroad in the West. Hmm. So that's the Iwakura mission. Um, So so the Japanese men definitely have experience, um, excuse me, uh, going to Western Europe and to the United States. Um, Japanese women, there are a few women who are sent to study at various schools um, around this time as well. But there isn't as much back and forth um, physically as far as women go. Nevertheless, coverage of things like um, debates about women's place in the West filters into the Japanese um, newspapers, um, sometimes told in very strange ways. And certainly, I think, um, sometimes the translations are just a little bit off as to what was happening. But, for example, the debates about whether women in the Utah Territory should get the vote or not, those are covered in the Japanese press. Really? Yeah. Uh, yeah that, that, is, that is interesting. Of course, they probably didn't have letters to the editor about these things that you can read. They, there are letters to the editor, but I don't really see a lot of women writing them about this sort of topic. Um, although there is some article where I... Maybe there, it isn't a letter to the editor where someone says something like, you know, women have been granted the vote in Utah and there are no cases where women refuse to, you know, do their husband's laundry or something. Hmm. I mean, there's tremendous fear at this time probably all over the world at giving women 
more rights would mean that women would stop, you know, doing their wifely duties or their motherly duties. Mm-hmm. And um, mm-hmm. yeah, so no, that, that, that's very, I just find that very, very, very interesting. It's an interesting fear. Let me ask another question, which I don't think is dealt with in your book, but I'm thinking about the Russian context again. In the late 19th century, socialists were extraordinarily important in sort of pushing mm-hmm. forward a a women's right agenda. Was there any of that sort of thing in Japan in the late 19th century? Did social, socialism it's make more, it there? It, it did, but it's more the turn of the 20th century. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So 1905 onwards we we have we can talk about sort of the socialist movement mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. i see yeah so it's earlier in the russian case obviously they're closer uh they're closer in right in, in many in many ways so uh, let, let's turn to uh what happens in in 1890 which i found fascinating because it's such a reversal i it, it seemed like everything was undone what what, <laughs> what why it's just very quick what why why did why why did that happen so when you say everything was undone, you mean that women are denied the right to vote explicitly? When yeah, the they're, they're yeah, denied the right to vote explicitly. This seems like a huge symbolic moment where, right. where everything halts. It's like that's that. Right. Well, there are a number of um, explanations that people have raised, and and one of one of them is that you know sort of the Meiji male elites were were horrified by some of the events of the 1880s. So some of the public speeches that women had given, the fact that women were involved in people's rights activism, and um, the people's rights movement in general, I should say, was one of the major threats that the Meiji state faced, mm-hmm. um, and eventually manages to base, basically squash. So. Um, some people see the, the, the laws barring women's political participation as a direct reaction to these very active women from the 1880s. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, other people say, look, they were looking at Western laws, and no one in the West had political, no women in the West had political rights either, so this really isn't very surprising. Mm-hmm. Um, but if I read you correctly, in 1890, there is, uh, the, the moment is most significant because it creates a kind of template for things going forward. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Could, could you talk a little bit about that? Um, so let me make sure I understand you correctly. When I talk about when you say a template for things going forward, you mean as far as how women are going to relate to politics? Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, I think that when the first diet meets in 1890, um, there's sort of general agreement among historians even those who don't study women and gender, that, that this is a moment of settlement when, when finally the shape of the Meiji polity really takes, uh, really takes place. And so as far as the place of women in this polity, the, the laws suggest that women are not going to be able to even attend political meetings, which they had been doing for at least 10 years. Um, they are not even to sit in on the diet. Now, the women do successfully protest this, um, this addition that they, or this law that they can't listen in on the diet. Um, and, and I'm sort of suggesting that that protest and, and the way that they go about conducting it and the people that they interview and the petitions they write, um, that that shows sort of the strategy that women are going to p- pursue from here on out, which is that they are going to continue to access and act in public, but they cannot mm. do it in overtly political ways any longer mm-hmm. um, because they have been explicitly barred from doing this. Um, but I'm not really interested in telling a story of sort of failure, which is, I think, a story that's been told before. Um, I don't think that the political leaders were very progressive in the 1880s either. It's just that they had other tasks at hand, <laughs> and they weren't really anticipating that women would be so involved in political life. Mm-hmm. Um, so 
I don't see the 1890s as the sort of end of everything in the way that, you know, one might think that women really do um, continue to use the skills that they've learned mm-hmm. to be engaged in public. And even things like campaigning for one's husband, um, to my mind, that sounds like a rather political act, but that is not construed as a political act mm. um, in the Meiji period. So women do things like that and mm. um, continue to access public space. Mm. Hmm. Yeah, that's, that's interesting that, that it wouldn't be considered political act. So uh, just for the benefit of our listeners and the benefit of me, I have to say, in all my ignorance, can we take the story a little bit forward past the bounds of your book? I don't know if sure. you're comfortable doing that. I'd just like to hear how you know, it played out. When did women get the vote in Japan? What happened during the, sort of, uh, the, the pre-war and war period, that kind of thing? Right. So um, it's, it's impossible for me to tell the story without telling you when universal suffrage for men arrived, um, because in 1890, only 1% of men have the vote. Mm -hmm. So it's very limited. In 1925, uh, universal suffrage for men is enacted. And shortly thereafter, there is a move that almost passes to get women the vote at the local level. I think this is in 1930 or 1931. Um, Once the war begins in China in 1931, a lot of these issues sort of um, go by the wayside. And the focus is really on the war effort. And feminists, a term I'm comfortable using by this point, really decide to cast their lot with the state and hope that if they collaborate with the wartime government that they will get more rights. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but women don't get suffrage until after the war. Um, the perception in this country is often that uh, MacArthur, who led the U.S. occupation of Japan, uh, was responsible for, for women getting the right to vote. Um, also, there have been books by, for example, Beata Sirota Gordon, who was a woman who was part of the American occupation, um, who spoke Japanese, and she uh, tells the story of how she sort of pleaded um, for women's rights to be included in the Constitution. Um, so this is not untrue, but um, I think you can see the, the granting of the vote in 1946 um, as a product of the efforts of Japanese women for a very long time, combined with the occupation um, being very open to this mm-hmm. um, move. So, Was there any resistance to it? Not at this point. Hmm, that's interesting. Not that I, I mean, there, there may well have been very minor resistance, but I, I think that by this point, you know, sort of consciousness has changed, and the whole idea that women could be denied rights was probably unthinkable mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I, <laughs> to most people. I, I see what you mean. And how have, uh, how have women fared in uh, political discourse and political life in Japan since the war? I will give you my thumbnail sketch, but okay. I'm making no claim that no, I am an expert. I, I'm, just, I'm just interested to know. I really don't know much about Japan. I think other people yeah, I think that um, Sally Hastings is working on a book about the first generation of, of post-war legislators. There are quite a number of women elected in that first election. Um, but those numbers dwindle over time. And just as in the United States today, I think women are pretty underrepresented as far as um, – you know, sort of, mm-hmm. if you look at the genders of politicians. Um, but, you know, nevertheless, um, they've made great strides um, mm-hmm. since, since the pre-war period. Yes, yes. You've got to give credit where credit is due, I guess. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah, but I would, I would probably, you know, refer readers or listeners to the work of Robin LeBlanc here because I, I think that she makes a pretty compelling case that 
the practice of high politics is still pretty masculine Seems in so. how it's understood in Japan. Yeah, and so that when, when women engage in politics, they tend to do it by um, using the label of, you know, we housewives who have this obligation to mm-hmm. care for our children and our husbands. Um, and so they're, they're very politically involved, but the language that they use is pretty gendered. Mm-hmm. Um, Interestingly, though, when I was in Japan a few months ago, I, I saw some um, posters for the Communist Party, and uh, one of the um, signs said, you know, Mama will also work really hard, or something like that. That was this woman's <laughs> slogan. Um, so here she was, you know, aspiring to be a politician, but by sort of highlighting her um, identity as a mother. And I found that really interesting and quite telling, actually. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, many of the, the sort of politicians who are in the upper levels of the diet who are women, um, it's my understanding that most of them are single women. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was, yeah. If, you, if you don't mind talking about this for just another second, and let's, uh, let's issue the proviso that you're, although an expert <laughs> on Japan, not a particular expert on this, so I don't want a million emails saying Marnie got something wrong. It's just a discussion. <laughs> they're, they're, um, so, uh, you know, one thing that's of interest to me in terms of women's position in modern Japanese society is <clears throat> the fact that, uh, according to them, um, I, I don't know if it is a problem or not, sort of objectively, they have a problem with their birth rate. Uh, yeah. is, is, are women under pressure to have children? or Very much so. Uh-huh. You know, you, you listen to some people and you think that, you know, there's going to be one person left in 100 yeah. years. Of <laughs> yeah, I'm sort of, you know, joking here a little yeah, bit, but no, there is definitely fear. Um, the birth rate is so low. Yeah. And there is a lot of pressure from government bureaucrats. What I haven't figured out is why they don't just provide free daycare and, you know, tuition. And I think that would probably help it go way up. Well, I, had a fr- I have a friend, actually, somebody from graduate school who lives in Japan now, and he married a Japanese woman. And he moved to Japan because, according to him, he gets paid to stay home with the kid. I don't oh, know if is that's that true. right? Yeah, basically, he get- they get a subsidy to do this. And uh, I suppose that's some sort of pronatalism. But in any case, uh, he's the one that does it. These days. Oh, great. So, uh, yeah. I don't think that's probably what the bureaucrats intended. No, I don't, think, I, don't think it is, I don't think it is at all, but it takes an American to kind of think like, oh, that. So a, a second question I had along the same lines is, that, and I may have this entirely wrong, there is uh, someone that could be the heir to the Japanese imperial throne, but it happens to be a girl, right? Yes, and that really was an exciting conversation a few years ago because the the current crown prince yes married the Harvard educated yeah, bureaucrat Mahako, right. yeah. and then they had a baby. She was under tremendous pressure, but the the baby was a daughter. And this was where uh, a moment where historians got really excited because it's only in 1889 that women are technically barred from becoming emperor. There had been female emperors, especially early on in Japanese history. All right, we're relevant. <laughs> Yay. Yeah. So, so um, yeah, historians got really excited and started writing about this and how it was really the Meiji state that initiated these um, patriarchal laws. But what ended up happening is that the crown prince's brother's wife got pregnant, and it turned out to be a boy. And so that conversation died out pretty quickly, and I think people assume that he will be the heir. So there's no question of changing the imperial household law at this moment. Really? Yeah. i got to say I'm really surprised by that. <laughs> I really am. I just don't see what's the point, really, at this point in the game. To, yeah, I, um, yeah I, don't, I don't see the point in that. But in any event, uh, and there's not a lot of opposition to it. There aren't people sort of standing in the street going, you know, let her be emperor. No, I don't no. think so. No. I, I think people were interested that, I mean, that's just sort of not how people get about imperial household issues anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I see. Well, yeah, that's more more my ignorance showing anything else. No. <laughs> I'd be in the streets, but then again, you know, in America. Besides, you know, the emperor's power in the post-war period is 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 symbolic power. Yeah. It's there's really no sure. direct power of sure. any sort. Sure. So. Well, I have I have one more question before our ultimate question, our traditional yes. question, and it's this. It's something I found in your book that I was curious about, and I can't. I, I don't know if I have it right or not, but uh-huh. uh, according to what I read and what you said, that women and men in the Tokugawa period didn't really spend a lot of time together in public. That there were sort of rules about where they could go, but if and again, if I got this right, they took baths together, and then that was out. Oh. <laughs> Well, maybe I should be a bit more specific here and, and add that I am also not a Tokugawa historian, okay, although right. I do love studying the Tokugawa period. Yeah. Um, what I meant to say is that wives and husbands don't tend to socialize together. Uh-huh. Now, that doesn't mean that when men don't socialize with women who are for hire, like geisha or mm-hmm. prostitutes. Mm-hmm. Um, so... So that's one point I would make. And yes, the mixed bathing thing, I, I think that's really, it was very common and it's only when Western missionaries start coming and talking about how barbaric this practice is. Yeah. That they, so it wasn't really an issue before yeah. and it, it is an issue now because consciousnesses yeah. have changed. Yeah, yeah. Well, Russians did it too. Oh, is they, that they, right? They yeah, yeah, they did it. They totally did it too. And when the Westerners came and they saw it, they were astounded. <laughs> they were completely astounded that this would happen. They just couldn't believe it. And, right. uh, and they thought it was sinful and horrible and and all things like that as well. So anyway, uh, thank you so much for taking the time to talk about your book. It's really terrific, and I learned a ton, and I bet our listeners learned a ton too. And let me conclude our interview with our traditional final question, and that is what are you working on now? I am working on uh, women's involvement in local politics in the 19th century, um, which was the, the question that I started my dissertation research with, but then I sort of gave up because of the extremely difficult documentary record. Um, but I am doing my best now to sort of understand what was going on at the local level far away from Tokyo. Mm-hmm. Um, Japan is not yet Tokyo-centered in the way it becomes um, in the 20th century. So mm-hmm. I'm particularly interested in, in some of the southwestern areas um, mm-hmm. and the... Um, kinds of activities that women were engaged in there. Mm-hmm. Well, good luck with that project. Thank you. And everything else. And thank you very much for being on the show, Marnie. Thank you, Marshall. Okay, take care. Bye-bye. Bye. You've been listening to an interview with Marnie Anderson about her book, A Place in Public, Women's Rights in, Me- Women's Rights in Meiji, Japan. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History. I hope you have a great week. <laughs>